0: Welcome to Creating Dangerously. Our name is taken from the Albert Camus 1957 lecture, Create Dangerously, where he said, To create today is to create dangerously. Any publication is an act, and that act exposes one to the passion of an age that forgives nothing. In Creating Dangerously, we look back at those who have created dangerously to those who continue to do so today in an age that still forgives nothing. I'm your host, Skip Shea so let's create dangerously for those of you who recognize this song you aren't going to want to miss this episode of Creating Dangerously as we interview film director Claire Jeffries and discuss her new documentary, Garland Jeffries, The King of In-Between, as we look at women who create dangerously in our next few episodes. And if you don't know this song, you're going to want to listen to see what you're missing. And- So joining us today is Claire Jeffries, uh, the director of the new documentary Garland Jeffries King of In Between, which is also the the name of his 2011 album and you're also Garland's manager and I believe you're also his wife.
1: Yes, this uh, is true.
0: <laughs> so it, it the movie had its world premiere at Dark uh, NYC New York City which is really one of the biggest uh, documentary film festivals in the world. And it won the audience award for best film and i i read that it was also the most viewed online documentary of the entire festival really yeah i i, I signed up to be a member of there and um yeah. yes you it was the most viewed
1: nice so i I, I didn't know because I, I i didn't see that or they didn't have any way of telling you how many views you had
0: So that, I mean, I think that's incredible. And I know uh, one of your goals was to bring Garland and his music to a wider audience. So I'm going to say you succeeded already (laughs) with that.
1: Uh, I mean, I I initially was disappointed when they said it would not be streamable outside of the U.S. because a lot of people are his fans outside of the U.S. And I got numerous emails and requests. How come I can't see it? And you know that was kind of nice in the sense that, and if and a number of people couldn't get on the site to stream it, a number of people spaced out and missed the deadline. So I'm I'm assuming that once it is available, all those people will uh will watch it.
0: Yeah, I, I absolutely yeah, and he was, and I'll we'll touch on it a little bit later, but he was huge in Europe. Yeah. Um, um, but I guess for the uninitiated, um, the basic question is like who was Garland Jeffries?
1: <laughs> you want me to answer that? <laughs>
0: I, I, I do. Oh
1: god. Well, Garland is a singer-songwriter. And when I was doing the film, I sort of realized that his music had had shifted over the years. I think initially it was very uh folky and sort of derivative of the band because he was actually up in uh Woodstock recording with some of the uh members of the I guess it was the Nighthawks, Ronnie Hawkins yep. band. And um and then he got more into a sort of a confessional singer-songwriter vibe, but it was still uh, sort of guitar-based and folky. And I think it was really with the Ghostwriter album in 1977 that he kind of fused a sort of a folk rock pop reggae sensibility into something that was distinctively his his own and and over the years he sort of veered from that a little bit but in the last three albums I think returned to that sort of more idiosyncratic personal sound and you know his songs are always personal they're always uh one of his themes throughout the years was always racial injustice. I guess you could say, in the sense that he was born in 1943 in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, at a time when being a biracial person wasn't wasn't. Uh, it was almost not accepted at least in his community i think it was almost like you were a mongrel of sorts you were you were sort of betwixt and between and that and that is in fact where the title comes from that he always felt he was between everything he was between the races between the classes between the between and even i think there's something in the film where he describes going to syracuse university and there were the mohair sweater people and i think that was his code for saying the very wealthy people yes <laughs> and he you know didn't have two nickels to rub together when he was a young man and he um you know even though his father disciplined him very severely, almost to the point of abuse. He in later years came to appreciate that his father did work two jobs to send him to university. And um, again, that was that was unusual for his his community, his, his, his uh, race and he you know i didn't include it in the film but he always told a story about how he um had applied to the Syracuse semester abroad study in italy which still exists and this must have been 1963 and he was an art history major and he was rejected from the program and he went to the head of the program and made a case for himself, and they decided to let him in, and he was the first person of color in that program. And it was life-changing for him because he he was exposed to Europe in a way that he would never have been able, you know, he wouldn't have been able to go as a trip, for example. He, right wouldn't have been able to afford that so it was it's pretty great and i think that's a hallmark of his personality is he was always sort of scrappy and a fighter and you know would would sort of push to to get access to things that he felt were being denied him
0: well i i I would i would agree with the um part of the the podcast is is based on camu's lecture creating dangerously and i always felt that garland was one of those and and i'll go to uh, the ghostwriter album that you mentioned 1977 which i I think i'm lucky where i where i am in in massachusetts at the time because we had wbcn so they played wild in the streets and 35 millimeter dreams all the time it was still there was still a freeform radio station at the time so you know we all got the album and then when when you know for the first time when you hear i may not be your kind it's it's literally a, a life-changing song it's similar I I, I equated similar to when I first heard Stevie Wonders um living in the city because'm mm-hmm. I'm, I'm in a small you know white town that was unaware of this yeah and and hearing you know garland singing about you know wanting to be with a white woman um was actually dangerous then <laughs> Um,
1: yes exactly
0: and and it's a beautiful song i mean it's a great album i mean you know you know i could i may not be new york skyline is, is 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 a beautiful song but you also mentioned um his dad and and uh in his rock and roll adult live album the version of cool down boy which actually is the same you have it in the movie uh when he talks about his dad and and it does sound like it borders on on it doesn't sound to me like it borders on. I mean, it sounds like abuse. <laughs> yeah, uh, which I also thought was incredibly brave. Uh, you know, to close out the live album with that song. Um, and, and and that was a time that was right after Escape Artist when a lot of us, again, I'm probably talking about people my age, started to see Garland live. Uh, the 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 Escape Artist uh, song that's you know had his biggest hit, uh, the cover of Ninety Six Tears. But I would argue that like Christine should have been a hit, Modern Lovers should have been a hit, R O C K Rock should have been a hit. That that's that's to me like Ghostwriter. There's it's a perfect album. Like every song is is hit worthy. But and he did have a hit with 96 tears, which um I, I'm hoping that 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 helped helped him a little bit through that time. But in between that was Matador, right?
1: Yes, that was uh I think that album came out in 1979. Nine. Yep. And uh, and then that again was a life-changing experience because the song took off in Europe and and enabled him to tour there and I think he was in Pink Pop Festival which was a gigantic festival and uh that he really became identified with that song in Europe, particularly in Germany for some reason. And uh, apparently it's still played in, you know, you'll go to a beer hall or something and you'll hear it, or there'll be a karaoke version of it or an <laughs> oompa version. And a friend of ours, uh son was, was studying abroad in Germany and he went, somewhere obscure and heard it being played and that was a, a few years ago so i mean the song has had a lot of legs and as he says in the film that really paid the bills the royalties on the songwriting of that song as well as the performance royalties uh were were very critical to him Basically, being able to go for long periods and not record and and uh, not have to take a a day job, so to speak, although who knows, maybe that would have been a good <laughs> <laughs> might have been a very good thing. <laughs>
0: I, I I do I do like the uh the version in the in in the doc about how Gene Simmons was was mm. integral to making Matador a hit, um. But I I I, I remember hearing the story myself, and um, it was more along the lines of I'm not listening to this guy from Kiss, you know. <laughs> initially, <laughs> yeah, I think the I think the story aged uh,
1: aged out in a certain way that it was much more responsive you know what's crazy i you know i had put something up on facebook recently about and i don't know where you were going with this in the podcast but his uh alzheimer's that he's had for years now and it's progressed to the point where he really cannot uh grasp what's going on with the film and and somebody wrote and said that in 19 19- I think it was in the 80s or maybe early 90s, he was taking music theory at the new school with this particular person. And he stopped studying because he was afraid that the the knowledge would make his sa- song sound too white. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed and I thought to myself, he probably just didn't want to keep studying <laughs> you know just you know how that's a total brooklyn thing i think that you you know you are born to spin you are born to hustle you are born uh, you know it's really in in his case very true and and uh phil messina who's in the film who's his childhood friend this was not in the film but he talks about how garland would You know, they would be looking for a summer job and Garland would just go up to the person and extend his hand and say, hi, I'm Garland Jeffries and I'm looking for a summer job. And, and Phil would be quailing in the corner, you know, how did he have the assertiveness to go and do this? And that, that is really a fascinating part of his, his personality because he somehow got you know that, that combination of great confidence and internal lack of self-esteem, you know which which we all I think have to some degree, but he he definitely had it and but was able to really put that on, you know, super confident, really interesting,
0: yeah, i I when you say he didn't want to sound white, I think this this will bring bring me to the uh, don't call me buckwheat album. <laughs> which which um i think springsteen you know in in the documentary said this you know came out 30 years ago could come out 30 minutes ago which i think is is and that's it, it, very insightful because it's true i mean it, it everything that's on the album is as timely today as when i first heard it but on it he does hail hail rock and roll which actually talks about how the white <laughs> sounding white white took all you know rock and roll away um from from its roots and i do believe this it was detrimental to, to garland trying to be a rock and roller uh because it was um hard they wouldn't push a a, a black rock and roll artist I, I when i have conversations with other people about this they always mention well what about living color and i know vernon reed is actually in the dock. but but um but yeah living color had what one hit you know and then 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 what happened you know i you know, know? that i know they're touring now um, yeah,
1: and Living Color, that's another, and, I, and I'll just jump in here, pretty fascinating thing because Vernon's interview was quite lengthy, and we obviously didn't include too much of it, but he talked about how Don't Call Me Buckwheat, there's one song called Racial Repertoire, and it, and he, and Vernon used the phrase code switching, you know, that you will you will have a certain racial affect when you're say in the white world versus when you're in the black world and and the whole idea that you go and these this idea of microaggressions which is very pretty recent in in our society that this concept that you you're a black person you go into a store and you will be you will be watched much more closely than than a white person. And you might even I will never forget one day we were in a store in in the Hamptons, and our daughter was was young, and she was in a stroller. and Garland was relating to her in some way, and I was off doing something else. And the salesperson actually came up and and asked him something like, "Is that what are you doing?" You know, leave that, leave that baby alone, and and wow. that was, you know meant you know there's a million of those little stories, and I think to get back to your point about Vernon at the premiere of the film, Vernon was in the audience, and we did a Q and A, and Vernon was the last Q, and I wish I had recorded it because he went off. And he basically said, you know, Garland has a right to be angry. The music industry has been, he didn't use the phrase ripping off, but he, I think he said something like living off the backs of black artists for an eternity. And, and he was quite uh, forceful about it and. And then the Q&A ended. We didn't really go any further with it. But I I was really kind of taken by that because I thought to myself, I ended the film on a sort of a, I, d- I tried to look at Garland's dissatisfaction and anger and try to make a case that some of his failure to launch or failure to thrive in the music industry was was racial racism some of it though was his own shooting himself in the foot some of it was just bad luck so i think i was trying to make a case that to be a successful artist everything has to work for you 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 can't just have say good songs you can't just be a great performer you 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 know if you want to look at springsteen as a perfect example of someone with a long career who actually his first show in new york city was opening for garland which i i didn't didn't know. know i didn't know until i did the doc and i found that in some obscure dave marsh book where he said you know columbia wanted to see if bruce was was could put his material across live so they slapped him on a bill with garland and charlie musselwhite at the cafe o gogo in <laughs> 72 nice. and uh and that must have been when garland and, and bruce met so in a sense they were both at the same level and you know talk about a divergence but one of the keys, I think, to Bruce's success is that he has had John Landau as his manager for all these years. And that has been an incredible partnership in terms of uh, building his career to the point it is now. And Garland never had good management. And not to say that that would have been the key, but it would have been one of the keys, I think. So, but to get back to living color yeah they did have one hit they are still performing but in the way of history i think they're being more and more recognized as one of the first black rock bands and that they they still exist and they still perform and and i think it's it's great because you know there, there's always been Arthur Love and all the, there's always been artists who are black who tried to be in different genres, but perhaps never had, none of them, I don't think, have ever had the success that would have been afforded to a white rocker.
0: I completely agree yeah um and um i mean and i will say just as an aside i was i I was at garland's last show at the the city winery and um Mm -hmm. i was really excited when vernon reed got on the stage (laughs) where i was afraid of malcolm which he did on the album uh the same album don't call me buckwheat with garland so i was like i I don't know who i was at the table with i'm like that's vernon reed that's vernon reed and the (laughs) truth is they said who's he i'm like who's vernon reed exactly Um,
1: exactly uh,
0: Actually, Vernon people. A total aside: people should follow Vernon on Twitter because he's he's quite an advocate for all guitarists. If some guitarist doesn't have ten thousand followers, that's the greatest thing. (laughs) He pushes until they do. And and I was going to get to um, uh, you know Garland's the, the Alzheimer's because I do I do find it you know sad and poignant that it's. I know he's wanted this documentary for a long time. And here it is, and, and I, I really do think it's going to be a big success simply because of how it did it at it at the dark New York City. And he, he, he's not aware. So that that's gotta be hard.
1: It is. It's 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 very hard. And and I keep saying there should be a a better word for bittersweet. It's a word that had a little more heft.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: <laughs> that's exactly what it is for me these days is that i i i speak to him about it and i i can't quite tell how much he's grasping of what i'm saying but there was a a period about a week and a half ago where i i managed to capture him at a very alert period and i showed him the poster which is mounted on foam core that i was putting in the lobby of the theaters and uh, i read him a few texts that people had sent and i i explained to him how people were responding and and he seemed really pleased and he actually said something like that's a lot to take in so he he kind of was acknowledging which i've been experiencing too there's been such a an outpouring of uh, of of respect and affection partly because of the information about the alzheimer's but partly because people had seen the film and are seeing the arc of his whole career and realizing you know that he'd meant a lot to them or that Or that they had an anecdote of, you know, a personal exchange with him and 201 everyone talked about how warm and gracious and funny and lively he was and that too is bittersweet because he's definitely none of those things now. And, um, you know, he's being well taken care of here at home but it's it's you know it's a disease that's a progressive disease there is nothing to be done to arrest it or cure it and so it's 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 difficult but you know one one thing i have experienced is in talking about it more openly uh it's amazing how many people have experience with it, it either is. with a a sibling or a parent or a spouse or a friend and it's it's almost an epidemic and it's not just because we're all old yeah. <laughs> well that's part of it but um it's it's really just incredible and so hopefully they will find something to well
0: i th- i think part of the success for the for the doc is that you directed it um (laughs) I I do really I believe that because I I think you you already had such an obvious intimate knowledge of, of Garland and his life that you knew what he wanted to say and you knew how how to say it so how how was it that it came to you to eventually be the director well how did how did you decide that that, that's a really good question.
1: I um initially, when I first had the idea for it, I thought I would work with a, an established director. And I did work a little bit with one. But at a certain point, it became clear that the story I wanted to tell would have to be told by me and and I and I was really afraid literally that I would make a vanity piece or that I would make it too soft or or too biased and and I was having breakfast with someone who eventually became one of the executive producers which it's a man named Sam Pollard, who is a an incredible director of documentaries. He he just did uh, South to Black Power, uh, uh, which is all about the reverse migration of blacks to places like Atlanta and Jacksonville, and with the idea being that they should return to the places where they have a political majority or at least a political possibility and use that to to create legislation so sam said to me why don't you direct the film and i said me i i'm not a filmmaker i i don't understand how to do it and he said something like well, doing a documentary, you really need a great editor. And I acted as if I thought this was quite possible at the at the meal, and then afterwards, I thought this guy's out of his mind. <laughs> not, I can't do this. But as time went on, I I started thinking, well, maybe I can do it, and I did have a good editor in in Evan Johnson, who uh, was introduced to me. The whole, I should really describe the whole project because there's a documentarian named Alex Gibney, who did a, he's got a company called Jigsaw Productions. And they, I think Alex has won Oscars for maybe Enron, The smartest guys in the room or scientology Uh, he's done an incredible array of documentaries so he introduced me to a woman named blair foster as a possible person to work on the film so blair came over to the apartment and i had all of the Arch- not all but a lot of archival materials laid out on a big table so she was seeing things like garland with a photo with bob marley and garland with charles mingus and garland with this one and that one and as well as articles and yeah and and she'd never heard of him of course and she was intrigued and wanted to work on the project but eventually it became clear that she couldn't work on the project because it had no funding. (laughs) So part of the reason that I did direct it was also because I was paying for it myself initially. And so again, part of the reason it took so long was because I was funding it. And when I say I, I mean, us, me and Garland, were yeah. funded. And, and um so it was sort of a stop and start situation. And, but eventually, it started to coalesce. And one, and one of the great things about it, me directing it was that I had a lot of access to the archive, which Garland was a saved everything and I always over the years would think why are you saving all this junk these papers these tapes but I went through everything over and over and and I found all kinds of goodies and and part of the evolution of the film was me reaching out to odd people for example there was a clip that i ended up getting from the uh the official archives of the city of lausanne switzerland i mean who i don't know that anyone would have been as dogged as i was about finding some of this stuff and and the footage of garland in the guggenheim in 1962 was literally under our bed in a tin canister and and I digitized it wow and and it actually was viewable it had not disintegrated so there a lot of those things were very personal and although I could have theoretically handed everything over to someone else I felt like um as time went on and it I, I think the personal quality of the film could have only been done with me at the helm. I think someone else would have made different choices and used different elements than I did.
0: No, I agree. That that's again that's why why I I firmly believe it works. And and I was going to you mentioned it. I was going to bring up the editing because the editing of the film was fantastic. So right. glad you had. I'm glad you had it. And that is that that's actually true i think for all films it's the editor um it, it's so uh, it, it worked but but the next you know question for you is so did you get the bug i mean do you want to <laughs> keep directing
1: skip i do not have the bug i <laughs> i <laughs> i think i may have the bug <clears throat> in the sense that i'm knowledgeable now and i kind of enjoy having figured out a new discipline this late in life but the amount of effort that goes into it i don't know that i would ever be engaged enough with a subject to do another film uh, and, and you know a friend of mine said oh well people are going to be calling you now to to, to people are going to be calling you to to document their stuff because you did such a great job and i said oh my god i hope not i mean i really i just don't think i can do it again
0: well that, that's um what well, part of uh that's actually one of the re- main reasons actually i wanted you on here because it, with the shauna foundation we actually uh have a woman in film fellowship where we fund first-time female filmmakers which you are uh, well <laughs> we give we give them uh, you know we give them like twelve hundred dollars it might be up to fifteen hundred now to, and we help them make their first short and we show it at the shauna and Shea Film Festival and we've had many who have gone on to continue to make, make films because we do a, a, as much as we can talk about um, uh, Garland and, and 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 the the race issues in, in rock and roll it's very similar with women in film. and ageism ageism.
1: absolutely ageism i at the closing party of the festival it was was crowded and i looked around the room and at one point i thought i am definitely one of the oldest people in this room i might have even been the oldest woman in the room and you know how they keep saying like 30 under 30 40 under 40 i thought there should be seven under 70 (laughs) i would be i would be (laughs) yeah, <laughs> in that category, but I mean, and I and I'm not a great believer in in saying, "Oh, well, things are hard. You shouldn't, you shouldn't try to do them." Or I think it's very limiting to say, "Oh, there's ageism, there's sexism, there's racism," but there is. Yes, and and we have to be aware of it, and we 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 shouldn't let it. St- let it stop us from trying but it is real and um and i see it every day and in in all of the arts and and regular business i mean i've heard many people say things like well i got laid off and i don't think i can get hired again because of my age and or they told me i was too experienced or something like that and and that's real
0: it is real and and we are an aging uh, community. I mean, the country is—we're just all all getting older. <laughs> so I'll we'll, we'll close it out. I want to because Garland had this great resurgence at the end with those those last three albums, which were incredible. But I I, I know you know because of, he had the, like you said, there was a grittier side to his rock and roll, and I know he was more of a Rolling Stones fan than a Beatles fan. <laughs> but yet he covers help. On his last album, and it's a very poignant, uh, slower version of the song, and actually more pays more attention to the lyrics than I think anyone ever has. but how did how did that come about that he covered help? Well, it's actually really
1: interesting, again, I, a story that he had always told me, but I wasn't sure of the accuracy of the story which by the way all of the yoga stuff in the film he had always talked about his involvement with with the yoga movement and i always thought he was sort of overplaying it a little bit i thought well if if it was so important why don't you have any photographs why why aren't there any why isn't there any evidence of this involvement and at some point during the making of the film, again, would not have happened if it weren't for me doing it. I saw a photo on Facebook of him at a wedding with Swami Satchidananda. And so I thought, wow, I've never seen that photograph. So I I tracked it down and I kept trying to get the original because the quality of what was on Facebook wasn't high enough resolution to use. So in my trying to find that photo, I was introduced to a woman named Prem Anjali, who is the official archivist of the Yoga Institute. And and I said, whoa, gee, do you have any photographs of Garland? And she said, well, let me get back to you. And, And that's where I found all that black and white 35 millimeter footage yeah there was a lot of it 16 millimeter whatever it was yeah and yet there was a ton of it and tons of still photos i was amazed and so that's the kind of thing where i i think you know garland was not exaggerating so the story with help was that he was in the power station recording I'm not sure what album and John Lennon was there and Roy Sakala, who was an, an engineer who actually engineered the King of in between introduced Garland to John and Garland said something like, Oh, I've, I've always wanted to cover help. And John said something like, Oh, that would be great, man. And, (laughs) and then he, apparently sent him a letter saying you know all songwriters want their songs to be heard and he sent him I guess the sheet music or something so I combed the archives for that could not find it but Yoko Ono at some point years ago contacted Garland and she must have known the story because she asked him to write an essay And it was included in a book called Memories of John. And it was about that. And then in my deep dives, I found some famous interview with Lennon where he said that the song was originally written as a ballad. And that it just got recorded in a more uptempo way with the Beatles, but that he had always intended it as a ballad. So isn't that fascinating? So that's why Garland recorded it
0: that that's yeah that that well the 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 last album well actually i shouldn't say the last album because you just released an ep
1: well yeah what? i have things in the vault
0: yeah uh, um uh, garland's drummer tom what's tom's last name
1: Curiano uh
0: did a wonderful job producing it uh i i just listened to it, it well, as soon as i saw it posted i'm like wow oh, these are you know new garland songs and that was great but but on uh 14 steps to harlem uh, the um uh, want to go to the, the final song on the album L- of Luna Park Love Theme which it's it's such an amazing song and, and again I was, was so lucky to be at the, the final show at the City Winery where I saw Laurie Anderson play with them
1: Flying up high Like a log. Coney Is calling One night With you in Luna Park
0: And I know that goes back to his his lifelong friendship with Lou Reed, and I and I think I, I I've started to view things for myself from a different lens artistically. Hmm. We, we we view things in you know in our country in a very capitalist sort of way, like all sorts of success is is by dollars, dollars and cents. That's how we 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 rate success. As opposed to artistic success, and I think you know just some of the stories and and, and you know that you're telling now about Garland and and, and you because you were there, um, it's quite an artistic life uh, and quite a successfully artistic life. And, and I think, I think that that should that's not said enough here when, when people just look at oh you know how where was it on the charts or how much money did this you know movie make. You know, Did if it didn't make so much on an opening weekend, it's it's a bad movie. Well, no, it's not a bad movie. Just not that many people saw it yet, and everything and everything has you know a much longer lifespan. But I I I, he's had a you know incredibly wonderfully uh, full artistic life. Uh, and, and and I think that's something to be celebrated. And now so have you, because you just directed a movie. So you're you're a an Nazi. And, well, and Savannah's a, a singer herself. So you're just an artistic, an amazing family, artistically, and I would say artistically successful family.
1: Well, you know, that's an interesting topic to me, because I completely agree that America in particular... I don't think it was so true years ago, but now when a movie comes out, they publish the box office, or you'll look at IMDb and you can read where the star meter, you know, right. And, uh, you know, everything is starred and everything is critics pick and 10 best and everything. And, and if you are not in that elite, group as an artist i think you and garland certainly for years felt embittered uh angry confused discouraged and the period between i i guess 1996 and 2011 he had didn't record anything, or he maybe recorded a few demos, but didn't. Was kind of throwing in the towel, I think, because of the disappointments and the heartache. But then, to tr- to to put out an album ourselves on our label, which we just made up the name, we didn't even. <laughs> I don't think we we produced an LLC or anything. But we, um, that was liberating. And I think that gave him a sense of, I can just put this out and people will find it or not. And I can perform. And and he really loved performing more than any other part of the his career, especially in later years where I think he felt more himself and more, less worried about how many people did I draw but what kind of a show am I putting on and and for him not to be able to perform was heartbreaking for him I had to I had to be the the person to pull the plug on that and and say you can't perform anymore your performances are not good they're that you just can't remember enough of your lyrics and how to how to put them across and uh he was very very sad about to have to let that go but i i felt you know that was important to do um so anyway in closing i think that i guess i can call myself a woman director who knows maybe i'll change my tune and <laughs> when I, when I recover a little bit from this, I might start to hanker for it again, because I had to say it was fun at times doing the film and finding the elements and the editing process and finding the story through the material as opposed to finding the material to fit the story. And, um, So that's that's as a process was was pretty compelling. And it may draw me back, but I do not know.
0: (laughs) So (laughs) where can where can people follow along uh, for the doc?
1: Well, they there's a number of sites. There's a uh, an Instagram that. I think it's called Garland Jeffreys Documentary. I should look it up right now. Then there's Facebook pages for King of In Between. And there's Twitter, which I'm really not using much. And there's a freestanding website, Kingofinbetween.com. And then I have a mailing list that I periodically will update people with and um my hope is that when we get distribution i'll just blast it out to all those people and they will they will watch and and tell their friends
0: i i believe that they will well uh thank you claire for joining us um well it's it we'll probably air this in January because that's when we have our our, the whole podcast is dedicated to women in the arts uh, for all of January so I'll be editing this now and um and look forward to chatting with you again all right well
1: thank you very much for having me I appreciate it it was really fun may I have your attention please I think you all remember the bargain we made about staying all night
0: I don't think so Vincent not tonight anyway your thirty five millimeter dreams are the stuff of nightmares. I got thirty five millimeter dreams, thirty
1: five millimeter dreams, thirty five millimeter
0: dreams. Thanks for joining us today, folks. Our opening and closing themes are by Shane Ivers. Creating Dangerously, a monthly podcast, is a production of the Shauna Ishay e. Memorial Foundation, Inc., a 501c3 charitable organization. All views and opinions expressed in Creating Dangerously are not necessarily those of the Shauna Foundation and its affiliates. Not that we have any. They are only the opinions of the hosts and the guests. See you next month, and remember. Keep creating dangerously.